you can now listen to Conning the Con ad-free on Apple subscription and buymeacoffee.com forward slash Conning the Con. But that is not all you will find there. I've got two little words for you. Tonka Trilogy. If you know, you know, right? And if you don't, keep listening to Conning the Con and it will all become clear soon enough. And if you want a sneak peek, head over to at Conning the Con on Instagram and get a look at the lighter side of this, well, very heavy con story. Simply click the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts for ad-free and bonus content. Or if you aren't an Apple user, head to buymeacoffee.com forward slash conning the con, where on top of that ad-free and bonus content, you can access exclusive videos. You'll find all the links, as always, in the show notes. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it. Well, stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this. Tickets that not only look, but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. Something is creeping don't follow it down. Imagine the target of a con is like a tiny grain of sand at the bottom of a crystal clear lagoon. Above it, the water is broken by the strokes of a passing swimmer, whose perspective sees not that single grain of sand, but the larger, undulating, repeated patterns made on the sandy lagoon floor. My point? Well, you cannot spot a pattern without perspective. And it's the same with a con. Typically, a con artist will limit a target's perspective with grooming techniques like isolation and gaslighting. So how valuable is it to be able to see that bigger picture? Particularly when you're looking at some kind of personality pathology, you really want to look at how consistent a behavior is not only across time but across context that's when you start to to get the picture that something enduring entrenched is going on with their personality when you see i guess a behavior present in isolation that's not part of a bigger pattern then you're probably more likely to see that as like an, an environmental thing like maybe there's a life stressor going on and that that behavior is in response to that once you get the sense that this thing is occurring over time across different contexts, that's when it's really signaling it's more of a personality disorder. Dr. Muir there, coming up in this episode. Sometimes you can just tell when someone's lying and I was just always on to them about, why are you lying to me? Like, why can't you just tell me the truth? By 2005, I was the Transport Division's GM. 
It was just driving log trucks. Every little story, you had to just put this little bit of sauce on it and embellish it. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. Something is creeping in, don't follow it down. Time to do a quick recap of the last episode. It found us in Tasmania, Australia, or Tassie as we Antipodeans like to call it, in the year 2015. We met Fabian Christoph, the owner of the Mill Restaurant, that Andrew Tonks purchased using a truck he didn't actually own as security. In his wake, he left Fabian $150,000 out of pocket and a trail of unpaid parties, including landlords, suppliers and staff. But what happened prior to 2015? I wanted to know about Andrew's past for a few reasons. One was to establish if there was a pattern, if I was the first to be conned along the way, or if I was one of many. It seemed really unlikely that someone with what started to be emerging as a pattern of lying and deception would have gone from law-abiding citizen to con man overnight. But we were about to get some help filling in those blanks. So let's circle back to that story that Fabian, the owner of the Mill Restaurant from our previous episode, touched on. The one about Andrew's Harley Davidson and jet ski importing business. Remember this story from the Tonka Trilogy, where he'd gone to LA to purchase items that, from this point on, I'll just be referring to as Tonka's toys. I had a blast of a week, hung with the angels, purchased a bunch of bikes, found some classic cars, life was good. He would say, well, I've got a jet ski contract or a Harley Davidson contract. Like if they're 120 grand, I can get them for 50 grand, but I need to prepay for them to get them in here. So people would give them money. So he could buy them to bring them over, and obviously he never did. According to Fabian, Andrew did this to a member of a well-known Australian gang, whose name he wanted off the record. That person was pretty keen to kill him. When we released the first episode of the podcast, we actually had no way of knowing whether there was any substance to this story. But since its release, we've had several people come forward and confirm that they had in fact invested thousands and thousands of dollars in Tonka's toy scam. The difference with the targets in this instant was that they were actually a lot closer to Andrew than we'd expected. For the sake of the podcast, we've changed the names of some of the people interviewed. So let me introduce you to Axel, a cool name for a cool guy. Back in the early 2000s, Axel met Andrew Tonks through his wife's friends, who had all gone to school with him. For a lot of time, he was actually a really good mate. He comes across as a really nice guy because he, he wasn't doing any of that stuff to any of his close friends or family, we didn't experience any of that. So for us, he was just part of the group and he was a really probably overly generous person. So he gave you a lot of his time, like he was always shouting at the bar, you know, embarrassingly sometimes. You would think that generosity is actually a great trait to have in a friend, but Dr. Muir, she had some other thoughts on it. With that generosity, it's just digging a little bit deeper to looking at like what actually is the function of that generosity or someone presenting as this nice guy. Because what can look like generosity or what can look like niceness might have ulterior motives, right? So is it actually more about impression management and getting admiration and approval rather than being an altruistic gesture? One of the hallmarks of his personality was he was always elaborating his stories. Like he was, it was all these little white lies all the time. Like every, every little story, he had to just put this little bit of sauce on it and embellish it. When I first met him, we went to this Foo Fighters concert in Melbourne. And my wife is a massive Foo Fighters fan. 
and he's a big Foo Fighters fan. So there was a Friday night concert and a Saturday night concert. Now he randomly got tickets to the Friday night concert and we were going to the Saturday night one. So we got there and he was like, oh, I'm going to the Friday night one and I meant to have this mate coming, but he hasn't showed up. So, you know, I'm happy to take one of you guys. So my wife's like, I'm going. So she jumped at it and off she goes. And that was all fine. Like it was a generous thing for him to do. Gave my wife a free ticket. Didn't expect any money for it. They went off and had a great time. The next day we were going out and then we all planned to meet up afterwards and go hit the clubs. So later in that day, I'm like, oh, Tonks, yeah, just checking in, mate. We're about to go to the concert and, um, yeah, catch you out later on at this place we decided to meet at. And then he's like, oh, look, I'm really sorry, mate. I can't make it. My boss has called and he wants me to go to Adelaide. I've got to go to Adelaide. Um, he's looking at buying a fleet of new trucks for the business. So I have to go and inspect all these trucks for him. And I don't really know the guy. So I was like, okay, cool, no worries. I'll catch you next time. That's that's cool. So it was like a week a week or so later and I caught up with another mate and um, we were just discussing our weekends and, and he was like, oh, yeah, I just went down to the, the local footy on Saturday. Yeah, went down there and Tonksy was playing. You know, he just he just was playing a fill-in spot on Saturday morning. And I was like, what? He told me he was going, going to Adelaide to look at trucks on the Sunday. So you're saying he, he flew home Saturday morning to play footy. And we, ne- we never said anything about it to him, but it was, it was almost like every time Tonksy said something that was dodgy or just an embellishment, we just kind of wink at each other and just say Adelaide. And that was our little code word for just Tonksy telling bullshit tall stories. And it was always, I don't know how many times we just looked at each other and we were just like, Adelaide, Adelaide. And like that was the code word for pulling out his bullshit. Over this period in the early 2000s, Andrew had been working as a delivery driver. Eventually, employment relations had soured and it resulted in a run-in with the police. It was one of the suspended sentences that the judge in the Otago Daily Times article from his arrest in 2015 alluded to. Axel's recollection of the case was somewhat fuzzy. And soon after it happened, Andrew moved to Western Australia, known to the Aussies as WA. So this is gap that we don't really know what happened in WA. We do know that, you know, the, the AFL story he tells about how he's an AFL player. If you're wondering what AFL stands for, well, it's Aussie Football League, I think. I really don't know. As far as I can tell, it's a game kind of like rugby, but there seems to be a large shortage of funding for the players' uniforms. No team can afford sleeves and the shorts are all provided in possibly the more cost-effective junior boy sizes. I do know, however, that it is the most watched sport in Australia. And so playing for an AFL team is up there in the celebrity stakes. Being scouted was a proper big deal, and still is. So here is an excerpt from the Tonka Trilogy that helpfully covers off the missing years for Axel. And I can imagine when he hears it, he will gently roll his eyes to the back of his head and mouth the word, Adelaide. I was asked to move to Western Australia to try my hand at AFL. I've previously been a soccer goalkeeper and my kick had been noticed by the Australia Institute of Sport. Just after my 21st birthday, I was drafted to play for the West Coast Eagles. I played 16 senior games with them prior to tearing my hamstring off at the bone at the end of the season. At the start of 2003, I was transferred to play for the Richmond Tigers in Melbourne. Unfortunately, at the end of the 2000 season, I tore the same hamstring. I decided to ask to be delisted and returned to Hobart, where I returned to a job I'd previously been offered 
in heavy haulage and civil construction. As you know, he's really good at taking a little bit of truth and, and twisting it so that he creates this pattern or this character that he's building. I ended up in my element in early 2004 when I joined Hazel Brothers Group, one of Tasmania's largest civil construction companies. By 2005, I was the transport division's GM. He was just driving log trucks. He was working big hours and it paid, like it was blue-collar work, but it obviously paid okay money. So he did he did have a, a bit of money to spend. You know, he sort of always had nice cars and lots of toys. So I feel like he it was like he'd built this persona around himself and as far as like relationships, that was the other thing. They were oh, they were always like this separate thing that we didn't really, we never really got close to the girls that he was seeing. He always kind of at the end of the relationship, it would be this thing like, oh, she screwed me over and, she, you know, she was just taking all my money and, and all of that kind of scenario. Like he would destroy their character for the rest of us. I guess we just kind of believed what he was telling us about these people. I remember one of them and he treated her terribly and he really just painted a nasty picture of her and it's obviously all bullshit now we i feel so bad for not having believed her but at the time she said guys don't know his true self and one day i guess you'll understand but you just don't understand i was just stuck in the back of my mind like what what are you talking about he's a nice guy everyone thinks he's a nice guy but he just kind of lingered there so maybe that was the genesis for thinking through a lot more of the stuff that, that came through in the end he was always like talking about he had these grand plans he he wanted to be a businessman. He wanted to be more than this blue-collar kind of truck driver guy, like delusions of grandeur. I know that's the, the psychopathic terminology, but you could really see that at that stage. He wanted to have meetings with people about investment strategies and all that kind of stuff. We're going to jump out of Axel's story now because this is where Andrew's life intersects with a beautiful 23-year-old medical secretary called Kate. We met in Hobart in about April 2008. He worked with my sister. I just met him and we hit it off and he was just such a nice guy. He was charming and, you know, he had a a good job and he had a great family and he just seemed like a really awesome guy. He was working in transport for Hazel Brothers in Hobart as a truck driver, I think. He was just such an easygoing, laid-back type of guy. He was seemed really genuine, not cocky or arrogant or anything. You know, you meet him and you think, oh, wow, I've met a keeper here. <laughs> yeah, like I was pretty impressed with him. I'd actually just come out of a long-term relationship and so to meet this guy, he was just a completely different type of guy to who I'd been most of like the last four years. I was really pleased to have met him. Before meeting Andrew, like so many 20-something Antipodeans, Kate was planning to travel and work overseas. So we thought, cool, this is going really well, let's travel together. We met in April and we left for travelling in October, so it was pretty quick. But at no time in that did I have any doubts. Yeah, honestly, in the early days there was nothing that was not right at all. Because he lived at his parents' place, I did get to spend quite a bit of time with his family and his sister and they were all so lovely and, you know, that's a big plus when you meet a guy is if they come from a nice family. Yeah, once we were planning our trip to go overseas and he told me, you know, he had investments in hotels, okay, I didn't really think much of it, like, okay, I don't know much about investment, especially back then, so it wasn't really a big deal. But, I mean, obviously it came out later that he'd lied about that and he admitted that, no, I don't have any investments in properties, I just said that. That was when we were in Canada. We were looking at doing a trip to France. 
I said, oh, well, you know, how about you we use some of that money and we can go further? And that's when he said, mm, oh, no, actually, I don't have any. When he would lie, he would really lie and his lies would get more entangled. And he would lie about everything. It was weird, like where he'd been or where he was going and just even what he was doing out in the paddock. Death was in Canada and we were living on a property then and this is when all these lies started coming out. I just thought, I don't get it. Like, they, they were lies that weren't even important. Just like, did you go to the grocery store? Yes, but then he didn't. Sometimes you can just tell when someone's lying and I was just always on to him about, why are you lying to me? Like, why can't you just tell me the truth? He once said to me, there was a bonfire in one of the paddocks. He said, your horse went and ate a loaf of bread out of the bonfire. I said, horses don't go near fire. Like, it's just weird stuff. I remember him saying to me, I'm just sorry, sorry, I don't know why I lied, sorry. You know, it just, it was, it was really odd. And that's when I just started thinking, oh, I'm just not interested in this guy at all anymore. He just was starting to become weird, like just really strange. Both Axel and Kate had mentioned this pattern of inconsequential lying in Andrew's day-to-day life, and maybe it's a good time to stop and add that to the list of red flags that we should be aware of. But what would motivate that kind of behaviour in the first place? Lucky for us, we could ask Dr Muir. And just a little reminder, Dr Muir has never met Andrew Tonks, and so is speaking to the behaviour in general terms. That is super interesting to me as well. There's actually not a lot of research out there uh, on this phenomenon. Like it's not well defined to put a definition around it with pathological lying. It's that like repetitive lying and, and it may be for no apparent reason or it can be that kind of tool for manipulation or personal gain. Often there can be this quite like compulsive flavor to it, almost a sense like people don't have control. It's just happening to them. And that's probably more where you're seeing that inconsequential lying where it's like, this makes no sense to me why this person would even want to, you know, need to say that. But in terms of the developmental factors that contribute to that, there's, there wasn't a lot of research that I could find or, or theory. One hypothesis might be thinking back to those early environments. For these individuals, I suppose growing up, the truth must not have been reinforced at home. So perhaps telling the truth was met with punishment or abuse or mistreatment of some kind so that lying along the way has become protective or adaptive to cope with that environment. So at some point in life, assuming that lying must have had a helpful function and then it becomes this kind of like ingrained response and then later on in life, you know, it might not have that apparent function anymore, but it's become such a way of life that it's it's difficult to control. And I don't know about this particular case, but one hypothesis could also be this idea of like gaslighting and perhaps consistently telling these inconsequential lies as a tool to make the other person question their own version of reality, right? Well, whatever Andrew's motivation was for lying to Kate, she'd had enough. We had been in Canada for almost a year and I found an email that I had sent him. It was about eight months into the Canada trip and it was an email me writing to him about all his lies and saying, look, I just can't trust you anymore. I just can't do this anymore. I just, I'm over it. I'm done. His parents had come over and he was actually travelling with them around Canada a little bit and that's when I sent him the email. 
So I pretty much broke it off with him. Yeah, they'd come to visit and they were just doing a little trip just sort of locally, uh, you know, a few overnight stays here and there. And I said, no, I'm not coming. I don't want to come. And see, this I had no suspicions at all about anything other than the fact that he was just a bit weird and he lied. Like he was like a compulsive liar. But I didn't have any suspicions about anything else. I just kind of thought he's a bit of a dickhead. We were living together and we're on this property together working there. So he came back and he wanted to try and make it work. And I thought, okay, because then the next month my parents were coming across for a visit as well. And I thought, oh, gosh, okay, yeah, let's look, let's try and make it work, whatever. My heart wasn't in it at this stage, but he was still a nice guy. He still treated me well. There was no other, nothing else seemed wrong. So mum and dad came across to visit. I spoke to mum and dad then and said, look, I think I'm going to end this with Andrew just because, you know. And they couldn't see it because all they saw was that he was such a charming, lovely guy. And so they just thought I was sort of being picky. So, you know, I stuck it out a little bit longer. But then while my parents were staying, he got into a huge argument with the owner of the property over a mop. It was, yeah, it was really weird. And it turned really nasty with the owner and him. And they kicked us off the property straight away. Okay, so apparently the owners of the property had kicked them out after Kate had borrowed their mop and not returned it quick enough. Well, that was the story that Kate was told at the time, because she wasn't actually there. It was the story that Andrew relayed to her after he told her they had to leave the property immediately. And Kate, she never got to speak to the owners again directly. Was it possible that there was actually something more going on in that situation? Now, I've thought about that and thought, is that really what happened? I guess we won't know if something deeper was going on there, but I think it's interesting that the final contact Kate had with the owners was a message telling her to contact the Canadian police. They were trying to get hold of her to ask a few questions in relation to a man called Andrew Tonks. So then we were homeless in Canada with my mum there. So we went and found accommodation to stay in. And I thought, nah, this is it. That's the end. I've had enough. So I got on a plane and left and went home with mum and said to Andrew, look, that's it, I'm done. Kate and Andrew have now consciously uncoupled with no harm done. Well, almost. We need to go back just one or two steps. Before Kate had left on her travels, she had purchased a car through a finance company called Asanda. And on leaving Australia, she'd placed a lump sum of $12,000 in her own personal savings account, which was enough to pay off her monthly payments until her return. About a month before the breakup, I got an email from Asanda, the finance company, saying to call them immediately. So I rang them from Canada and Andrew said, oh, let me talk to them. They can be so difficult to deal with. And I thought, oh, yeah, okay, you talk to them. <laughs> right. And see, I was so trusting. I was young and I was like, okay, he seems to know. He seemed really switched on. Yeah. So he spoke to them and said, oh, yeah, it's all sorted out. The next day he shows me an email that he gets from Asanda saying, you know, dear Mr. Tonks, thanks for speaking to us on Kate's behalf. It's all sorted, the money's been paid off, blah, 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 blah. And I thought, okay, cool, okay, no worries, that's fine, that finance is sorted. And it wasn't until I got back to Australia and Asanda's calling me again and we put two and two together with Asanda and realised that email he'd showed me was a forged document. He had forged all the Asanda, their logo and all their details. He forged it all. 
and my car hadn't been paid off, he'd actually gone into my account, taken the $12,000. Well, the, the account this was in wasn't a shared account. This was just my account in Australia. So it would have been pretty easy for him. And look, I was in a relationship. I trusted him. I didn't believe he was going to do that. I was just angry, so angry. And I guess the fact that, like, he'd stolen the money, okay, that's bad. The fact that he forged a document, well, that just took it to a next level. Like, (laughs) yeah, who does that? That's crazy. So whilst Kate is getting herself settled back in Australia, still trying to untangle where and how the $12,000 has been taken from her own personal saving account, Andrew tells her that he has left Canada and is travelling in the UK. Now, they're still in communication because when Kate left, she didn't actually know the full extent of Andrew's deceit. And they also had some unfinished business. When I left Canada, I had bought a Chevy for us to drive while we were there. And when I left, he said, okay, he'll sell it for me. He sold it and then the $8,000 from that never came to my bank account. So I was constantly emailing him in London saying, where's this money, where's this money? And he was constantly coming up with excuses. And his biggest excuse was that he'd been robbed. They'd stolen all his credit cards, all his money and his passport. You know, at the time I thought, oh, no, he's been robbed. (laughs) I'm still believing this guy's shit. And I was like, okay. <laughs> but then when the 8000 never went through, never went through, and then when we found out about the other money, we went, oh, okay. That's why he's in London. He's got all this money and he's travelling around. So, yeah, I contacted him and told him, no, what you've done, and you forged this document. And I was angry. I was really angry. And so he knew that he'd been busted. So he admitted it, yeah. But he made it, he didn't come out with just that, yes, he stole the money and came up with all sorts of stuff that, you know, like he accidentally used the money so that we could be having a good time over there and going places. He found out that we were going to go to his parents and he sent me an email begging me. We said, look, this is fraud now. You've forged a document from a finance company and, you know, we can take this to the police. And he sent me this email begging me, begging me not to, you know, take it to the police and that he'd he'd get the money back. First of all, I'll start by saying how dreadfully sorry I am that this all had to end this way. I'm so terribly ashamed of myself and I'm not sure what I'll do with myself from now on. By this point, I didn't believe a single thing he said. Yeah, by this point, his lies were just constant and how can you accidentally steal from someone? In regards to the car loan, my stomach dropped when I realised I'd made the mistake and we had spent the money. I never intentionally stole money from you, and never would I. I'm a jackass, but I'm not a thief. I was just so scared, embarrassed and ashamed that I didn't realise what I'd done until it was too late. He's grasping at straws there. I understand fully if your dad wants to get me sent to jail. And that's exactly what would happen as I've served community service before, so there's no second chance for me. I'm not in a position to ask for favours, but if you could please let me pay everything as stated without involving the law, I would be forever grateful. I have no future, but the impact it would have on my family would be devastating, and I could not live with myself. I've also thrown away any chance of getting well-paid work with your dad's contacts, and please apologise to him for me wasting his time. I'm so incredibly keen to get my life back on track with his help but I have a good habit of destroying anything at any time I start to get ahead. You know, we didn't take it to the police because parents did end up paying 
me the money back. And at the time, I didn't really think it was too serious. Look, if I knew what was going to happen now, like 10 years from then, yeah, we would have gone to the police. But at the time, we just thought, okay, we've got the money back. I never really thought much about it. Well, my parents were furious because, you know, like when they'd come over to Canada and spent time with us, you know, he bonded really well with my dad and dad had, you know, taken him to the hockey and, you know, taken him out and and my parents really liked him, you know. He he fooled them, you know, and so, yeah, they were furious. I remember the dad didn't take it well and tried saying, well, you were travelling with Andrew too. You were spending that money as well. But we weren't spending that money. That money was in my account for my car payment. We had jobs and a, and a bank account together. That was the money we were spending. In total, Kate was out of pocket to the tune of $20,000. And when she looked back on her bank statements, she realised that it wasn't even like he'd stolen that 12 k from her personal savings account when he knew that their relationship was coming to an end. But around three months prior, and all that time, he carried on as if it was business as usual, not ever letting on that anything was amiss, even when her parents came to stay with them in Canada. Dad had some big contacts. And Andrew wanted in on that mining boom because Dad really liked him. Yep, he was going to sort him out and get him a really good job. And, yeah, and Andrew said that in that email, oh, I'm sorry for wasting your Dad's time. But, you know, I thought back on it now and thought, hmm, yeah, okay. He's just wanting to get to Dad because, yeah, Dad was high up in the mining industry. He'd have done really well through Dad. Yeah, he could have just worked hard and and he would have made a lot of money if he just worked hard rather than ripping people off. Kate was one of the lucky ones, able to recover her stolen funds, not from Andrew, but rather his parents, and then move on with her life. So how did Kate look back at her time with Andrew Tonks? I had a great time with him overseas. You know, he taught me to ski and snowboard and he was heaps of fun to be around, you know, and he was really... He really looked after me like he was really caring and, you know, that's why it's so shocking because he really was a nice guy. He really did seem to care about me and I guess he did. I don't know. I've got lots of great memories. Yeah. And I think that's why when once we found out about the money and once I got the money back, I never really hated him or you know, held it against him too much. I mean, I never spoke to him again. But, I, yeah, I think of my time with him fondly rather than the money side of things because that was just right at the very end. If only I'd known then what was to come. Like, it's so scary just to think that, wow, it wasn't just a mistake he made thinking, oh, just, you know, he's actually a really bad person. He just couldn't lie straight in bed. Was it all just a lie? I don't know if he ever did actually care about me or love me or... And then he just did that because that was the start of his, like, criminal crime spree to become a con man or was he playing it all along? Understanding Andrew's past has been a really big part of healing and moving forward. And it's not that I wanted anybody else to be conned by him. I think just from my piece of the puzzle, it was this not being so alone. And those conversations that I've had with his ex-girlfriends 
were actually really healing because there was this piece of me that got so angry and frustrated that I thought maybe I'd read it wrong, that maybe he wasn't that kind person and gentle and thoughtful, but that was what he portrayed to his other woman. So I hadn't been making that part up. It was just one of the masks and lies that he portrayed to all of us. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. And hi, Hi, True Crime Crime fans. fans. We're the co-hosts of She Goes by Jane. Every week, we'll be covering the story of a missing or unidentified woman in the United States. Stories you may have heard before. And ones whose stories didn't make it into the news. We've been covering these stories for a while, first in Amy's book of poetry, Doe, and then in Vanessa's documentary, She. But now we want to share them with you here on She Goes by Jane. And each week, we'll be joined by a special guest who will read a poem in honor of the women we talk about. Can we say who? We can say who. We'll be joined by actresses like Coco Jones and Gabrielle Ruiz. And musicians like Stephanie Quayle and Kelly Moneymaker, along with authors like Louise Penny and Catherine McKenzie. So check out She Goes by Jane wherever you get your podcasts, or check out Evergreen Podcasts and their true crime channel, Killer Podcasts. We can't wait to bring you these stories. Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people, to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com Kate and Andrew have now gone their separate ways. Her last contact with him placed him in London on the bones of his backside after being robbed of all her money from the Chevy truck sale and his passport. But the Tonka trilogy, it paints a different story. Kate decided to head back to Oz and cancel the rest of her trip. I waved her goodbye and headed off on a USA road trip. I went back to Vegas on a quick holiday. When I got to my hotel, the Planet Hollywood, the girl at reception asked ever so politely, are you by yourself, sir? And I said, yes, I am. Well, you better call some friends because you have a bowling alley and a full bar in your room. So I did exactly that. At the time, I still used Facebook. So I put a post out with a video of the room. Within four hours, eight mates had shown up and then stuffed me. Bloody Carl from school walks through the door. This is where the party's at, he yells across the room. Carl had gone from a scrawny kid back in school to six foot five of pure, completely tattooed muscle. You have never seen such a figure standing in your doorway. According to the story, this is when Andrew gets recruited by his old school friend Carl into what is initially sold to him as private security work, but pretty swiftly heads into launching his career as the world's most unassuming spy. After Carl and Andrew catch up in Vegas, perhaps after a few beers, whilst serving up a few strikes in the room's private bowling alley, Carl offers him the job as a driver in his private security business. I was thinking, why not? I spent almost all my savings. What would I tell my family? Mum will have a heart attack. Then as we exited the lift and headed for the room, I simply said, OK. Carl turned to me and shook my hand. He turned to me and said, from this point forward, you're just returning to Canada. Do whatever. Do not tell your friends. And whatever you do, do not tell your family. We fly on five days from Canada. We will hitch a ride. I'll explain more as we go. But you'll be able to call your family whenever you need to from there to keep up appearances. Shit! 
What the fuck have I just agreed to? Well, it's probably a good time to remind you that Emma had received the Tonka Trilogy after she knew Andrew's real identity and at no point was it ever believed. But it does highlight the warning signs that Dr Muir has mentioned in the past to be aware of, like the showboating and that use of grandiosity. But for now, it's time to jump back into Axel's story. He too had been spreading his wings and globetrotting at that same time, until eventually he finds himself back on local Tasmanian turf at the same time as Andrew. He's been telling me about how he's been travelling through the US. He's staying in all these luxury hotels and it's like, how on earth? Can, like I've been backpacking around the world and we're you know sleeping in people's floors and that's how we were travelling. So early in that kind of 2010-11 era, maybe 2012, he went on a trip to the US like a reconnaissance trip because he had this idea that he was he was going to get into importing and the Australian dollar was like at parity with the US dollar then. So I think he'd been over there and he'd been looking at um, Harleys and boats and exotic cars and thinking, well, they're really cheap over there and they're really expensive here. So he had this idea that if he could go over there and buy secondhand cars, then he was going to import them back here. So... He went over there, God knows what he actually did. As far as I can tell, he went to Vegas, spent a lot of time there. And then he came back and that was the sort of beginning of when things really started to go crazy. It was late 2008 and the GFC had hit the USA bad. What I discovered was the US was nearly giving away classic cars, motorcycles, boats, and then general toys such as jet skis and dirt bikes had become ridiculously cheap as everyone was holding on to what money they had left. I saw an opportunity and I jumped on it. I purchased four classic cars, around a dozen Harley Davidsons, and I also got five jet skis and five dirt bike ATVs. But so what he was doing, he was he was taking orders from people. So he'd say, if you want a horse float or you want this boat, or you want a Harley or whatever it happens to be, I can get it in for you at this price and then I just put a markup on it. That sounds like a legitimate business and I understand why people were, were getting into that because they were like, oh, okay, well, I can buy a car over there that's 15 grand and here it's going to cost me 35 and I pay this guy five grand and here it is. I put these in a shipping container and sent them to Melbourne. Within the first four weeks, I'd sold everything I'd sent. Within three months, I had more orders than I could handle. Within the first 12 months, I turned over just under 8 million Aussie dollars by Christmas 2009. It was like he had this attachment to the money side of it, like that was really important to him. He liked to have all the nice things. So he needed, he felt like that was part of his his persona that he needed to carry on. And I think that's where it, it really spiralled out of control for him. As you'd expect, Axel and Andrew and the wider friendship group that they all hang out with socialise pretty often. And they are all aware of Andrew's Tonka toy business, but no one has invested yet. So it is just part of one of the numerous stories that they would take with a grain of salt on a night out with Andrew. Like he was saying to me, oh, I've ordered this thing and, you know, I'm having real trouble. There's a strike over in the US in the shipping and, or, oh, the container fell off the ship, this kind of stuff. And we're going, okay, like... But it's not at the same time. It's not. It's not affecting us. So we're not really diving into it too much. Well, it might not have been affecting them yet, but it soon would. And it all circles back to this rumor Fabian had told us: the one about Andrew having sold some Tonka toys to a member of a local motorcycle gang. Well, it turns out that that rumor had substance. According to several people who reached out to us but wished to stay off the record, 
Andrew had ripped off the wrong person, and perhaps that was the catalyst for Andrew opening up the Tonka Toys investment to those in his closest friendship circles. And that's where our story intersects with another Sarah. Back in 2014, this particular Sarah was in the throes of planning a fantastic snowboarding trip with a group of friends, including her sister-in-law, who had asked if perhaps they could squeeze one more person into the accommodation, her Tasmanian flatmate that she introduced as Tonksy. So my sister-in-law and her partner were living with Tonksy in Tasmania at the time. When we were snowboarding, I just got the impression that he had lots of money. That was just the impression that he gave off. But otherwise, he seemed very, very friendly, very nice, easy to talk to. He seemed to always be on his computer, like he was very busy. I asked him what he did, and he said he ran a trucking company. I wasn't really sure what that meant, so I asked him a bit more about his trucking company and what it did. But I don't know what the answers I got were, but I did feel like I left that conversation not knowing any more than when I started. Sarah's lack of clarity around Andrew's business, even after questioning him, it illustrates a red flag that Dr. Muir mentioned back in episode two. If you're left leaving that interaction feeling like really perplexed and confused and like, well, hold on, like something's, something's missing, I think that's something to check in with. So after the ski trip towards the end of 2014, Sarah and her partner did a reciprocal trip to Tasmania for a holiday, catching up with her sister-in-law and her partner, who was still living with Andrew. In true Aussie style, they hung out, had a barbie, and even played a bit of table tennis. The house they lived in, my sister-in-law were renting a room that Tonksy had had the house prior. It was a very big, very nice house and it had said while we were there that the owners were selling the house and he was planning on buying it from them. And I do remember leaving afterwards and said to my husband, where does he get all his money from? Yeah, he definitely gave that impression that he had lots of money. A few months later, probably at the start of 2015, my sister-in-law had called us wanting to invest with Tonksy importing Harley-Davidson motorcycles. What her proposition was that we would invest $6,500 each towards this and that one of their friends had already done that and got a, a return from it. I had said, where is the, if I'm investing in a bike, where is the physical bike kept? But I said, but there's no way I'm investing in a part ownership of a bike that I do not have physical possession of. It all just didn't seem to make any sense of how you would make money from that plan. Well, I wasn't going to invest and she didn't have the money to invest on her own, so she didn't end up investing either. But there was definitely two friends from their friend circle who did invest into his motorcycle van. So there was a couple that invested about $10,000 between them and there was another friend who all up invested about $50,000. So alarm bells started to ring for my sister-in-law who was, up until that point, she hadn't seen anything alarming or any red flags. The alarm bells started to ring when she heard, overheard him on the phone one day to someone saying, sorry, I'm not here, I'm in Melbourne. When he wasn't in Melbourne, he was actually at home in the room next door in Hobart. And after he hung up the phone, my sister-in-law's phone rang and it was their mutual friend asking if Tonksy was at home. So it was obviously him, the person who had lost $50,000 that he had just lied to. Not long afterward, someone came to the door and it was a bounty hunter. And that's when my sister-in-law realised, there's something not right, this is a dodgy, I'm out, and moved out of the house. And the person that he had ripped off for the $50,000, I think then started pursuing with police to get his money back. Sarah was one of the lucky ones to avoid being caught out in Andrew's Tonka Toy Investment Scheme, but Axel's friendship group wasn't quite so lucky. 
Andrew had, with varying degrees of success, pulled in all but two members of his inner circle of friends at that time. Had there been any warning shots along the way? Well, our conversation with Axel had triggered a memory of one of Andrew's other run-ins with the law, but you wouldn't know it from Andrew's version of the events in the Tonka Trilogy. I expanded my trucking fleet to cover delivery vehicles for Coca-Cola Amatil. I won the first ever Coca-Cola Customer Service Award for a subcontractor. <laughs> that was funny. Late 2013, Coca-Cola fucked me by restructuring their regional delivery network. Cost me close to a million dollars. Not so funny. So Axel was pretty fuzzy on the details of the case, but the one thing he did know is that it actually did go to court. He actually asked me and a bunch of his friends to write character reference for him, which at the time I did. And fuck, I wish I could get that back because I'm so embarrassed by it. And I said, what did the judge say about all of the character references? And he said, oh, the judge didn't believe any of it. He, he just said that, you know, I'm a really dodgy bloke and none of these people really know you. And I was like, oh, really? We all wrote such glowing character references for you. <laughs> but he'd already seen, you know, he'd obviously seen other information coming through. So they had a different perspective of it, which he just hid so well from all of us for so long. And it was like he had that, that inner circle that he protected at all cost. I honestly think he always has this, this grand vision that he's going to become this really successful person and he's going to pay everyone back. And I don't know how many times after everything imploded that he said that. It's crazy because he's such a good con man. The level of detail that he can go into tricking people into giving you money, it's like, why don't you just save money and use that same level of, of concentration into actually running a proper business? Because it would be successful. Why don't you just do that instead? Why didn't he do that? It's just, it's insane. And like once it all sort of came to light and we started pulling all the pieces back together and finding out more information, it was this incredible tapestry of lies that he he'd kept up for so long. He wrote a letter to a group letter from prison. That was the last direct correspondence we had. But it was like this exercise in passing blame, denying everything was his fault. You know, I was only had good intentions, but someone did this to me and someone did. Yeah, it's like the proper psychopathic, nothing is ever my fault kind of personality trait. And it was all of that, like no, no responsibility accepted. And I'm, you know, I'm ashamed that I didn't spot it earlier. And, and it went on for so long without really putting it all together. But again, it's like, I just, I just think he's not playing our rules. He's playing a different game. You know, the very nature of a con man or someone with psychopathy is that they are so compelling. You know, that, that is what the manipulation is. So we're, we're all vulnerable to being in that position and, and not seeing what's really going on, particularly, you know, when they, there's sort of isolation and keeping these different parts of life separate where you just don't have oversight of that bigger pattern. And with things like shame, you know, shame's an emotion that drives us to kind of withdraw and retreat and hide ourselves away and not talk about things. But it is so important to actually address that, talk openly with others, see that actually people can totally understand and empathize and, and accept those parts of ourselves that we think we're, we're embarrassed or ashamed of. Some wise words there from Dr. Muir. Having a fuller picture of Andrew's past, Emma now had that perspective that had been missing when she had been in a relationship with him. But how had that left her feeling? I remember being kind of just in awe of the fact that we've all been through this and the impact that one person can have on many people's lives. I hope the people that have been impacted by him can move forward reduce that shame and embarrassment around it and know that it wasn't their fault. 
that if you have a heart that opens and you are trusting, it can be preyed upon. In next week's episode, we leave the past behind and pick back up where we left off with Emma thousands and thousands of dollars out of pocket and Andrew's solution to double down on his spy stories. After three months, one container was three parts full of firearms, one drugs, and the most disturbing one was people, mostly 16 to 18-year-old girls. And ever the multitasker, Andrew Tonks, the world's most unassuming spy, manages to pen his entire memoir, all while on his final spy mission, dressed as a bum in piss-soaked clothing. If you liked our story, please share with family and friends and like, subscribe and review so others can learn from my lessons. If you or anyone you know has been affected by something similar, please reach out for help. You are not alone. We've included some links in our show notes. Conning the Con was made with the input of Dr. Sophie Muir and the original music is by the talented Aroha Min. Something is creeping in, don't follow it down. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us.